Hi guys, welcome to The Church Split. My name is Will, and you guys know what we do here. We help you think biblically, challenge the status quo, and of course, escape your echo chamber. So thank you guys for being with me today. Uh, as always, like and subscribe to the channel. Don't forget to check out our merch store. We got some neat stuff there. We're going to add more to it. Uh, and if you have any suggestions, go ahead and shoot them at us, because we'd love to be have that. And if you'd like to support us, consider Patreon. Uh, we already have quite a few people there. They've already helped us get this wonderful screen that I'm looking at that allows me to actually see what I'm doing here. So anyway, um, also, don't forget to check out the RFP Network. That is where what we're a part of. We're a part of the Recovering Fundamentals Podcast Network. We're one of the many podcasts there. So don't forget to check out our friends who do other similar content compared to us, but of course, not as cool as us. At least that's what I would like to think. So <laughs> anyway, so we're today, we're doing a little bit different. We're kind of going back to a series that we've done before. So those of you who've been following us for a while will be familiar with the fact that we have an entire series on challenging the King James only issue that we see in churches today. Uh, the reason why this topic in particular is passionate for me is because I was raised independent fundamental Baptist, and they oftentimes tend to be King James onlyists. And of course, I was a King James onlyist. In fact, it was the, the last thing I said I would ever give up. I was like, nope, you don't mess with God's word. Of course, the more I studied the issue and the more I studied the languages and the more I studied textual history, the more and more I realized that actually my position was quite indefensible as a King James onlyist and it ended up completely shifting my view. So... Uh, we now, just because we challenge the status quo, some people who are really big King James only uh can't hardly even stand the fact that I would make such content. You know, they would say, I'm challenging the very word of God. Who are you, oh man? And I hear, I've heard it all. You know, uh, so they, I've heard people even compare me to the serpent himself. Hath God not said? Uh, of course, that's completely wildly out of context. And no, I am not saying I hate the King James. And no, I am not saying that we don't know God's word. So that's one of the biggest problems, that people seem to misunderstand modern textual positions. And there is more to it than just you have to have one particular Bible, because Bibles are translations. So I can't emphasize this enough. Anyone who knows a second language knows how this works. And it's no wonder that many people who are King James onlyists do not speak another language because they honestly don't understand how translations work. So for those of you who do not know, I did take German in high school. And also I took, um, I took ASL for years. I am actually fluent in American Sign Language. So to kind of let you know how, how translations work, it is not always word for word. In fact, there are some things you can't say in another language that works for others. I mean, for example, uh, I've mentioned this in other videos, but the, uh, in Spanish, I had a friend of mine from Mexico, and she said that uh, they have a phrase called, I don't have hair on my tongue. And what they're saying is, I'm not a liar. But if I say that specifically in English, it doesn't translate well. So instead, I would say, if I'm translating, that uh, you know, I don't speak lies or I'm not a liar. Well, similarly, in ASL, ASL does not have a past tense, so uh, you have to set the time of day at the very beginning of the conversation. So you say, yesterday, this, today, that, last week, and then you speak in the present. So I'd be like, yesterday, I went and saw a movie. So I have to say yesterday first, and then I will say went, see, movie, or go, see, movie, or see, movie, go, depending on how you want to break that down. Now, one of the things, another thing in ASL, I would not say I'm going to the store to buy some milk. I would say I store go, milk gone. And obviously that's different than English. It's a translation. 
which means it's not always going to be perfect, but there's also different ways I could say that phrase in ASL. I could say, I store go milk gone, or I could say, milk gone, I go store buy, or something like that. You can mix it up. And so just because it's worded differently doesn't mean it's an incorrect translation. It just means you have to kind of sometimes shift around what you're saying because, again, you're translating. You're translating a, different, a totally different language. And sometimes the language has different idioms and different words that don't translate perfectly. Like we know in the Greek, there are multiple words for the word love. And we only have, I love something or I like something. So therefore, you don't see all the neat little changes when people are shifting the word love. It's a translation. No translation is going to be perfect because translations, translational work is difficult. This is where the problem comes in because then people say, see, you, don't know, you can't trust the word of God. No, I can trust translational work just because I'm saying it in a different language and it's not coming off as a perfect word-for-word -word translation does not mean suddenly you don't have a good translation or that you don't have the word of God. It just simply means that the way of conveying that has shifted. There's a different way in which to communicate this in each and every language. That is what's being said here. So when we're talking about translational issues, understand the fact that you're just conveying something differently. It does not mean that suddenly there's no, um, doesn't mean that there's no correct translation either or accu more accurate translations. That's why actually it's kind of cool that in English we have so many translations because we can actually, if you read from a few of the really good translations and you can really, you compare like three different translations, you'll really get a good idea of what is truly being communicated in, that, in those verses. So it's helpful. Um, I do that all the time, you know, you cross-reference. But anyway, all, that was a tangent I wasn't actually expecting. It's not even in my notes, but it happened. So we're gonna go with it, okay? But Today, I want to talk about a specific topic of King James onlyism, which is revisions in the King James. So many people say we are 1611 King James only, but they're not 1611. In fact, what's pre, uh, printed today is the 1769. So most people have a 1769 King James Bible. There's been multiple revisions throughout history. And what has often been claimed is that these changes in 1611 are merely spelling and printing issues that, you know, that's it, nothing to actually changed the meaning. There are just punctuation, spelling errors, and things like that. However, this is a complete falsehood, and it is emphatically misinformation. It is not true. There's actually big differences between them. But before I do that, I have had a friend of mine nagging me, so we're going to get this out of the way now. Uh, a friend of mine who I mentioned in my King James Only series that him and I were talking, and I told him uh, that I would never, ever change the, my position on the textual issues, that that was my main thing. And I said that he was King James Only still, but I was not. I want you all to know that he has changed his position. He keeps saying that even though I never pointed him out by name, he knows it's him and he wants me to correct it. So we've been in great, we've been in communication lately and he wanted me to redact that statement. So this is me redacting that statement. I hope you're happy now, my friend. I won't say your name because I don't want to get you uh, in trouble with anybody without your permission being on the show. So anyway, uh, my friend has redacted his statements may the audience now know that the unnamed person who remains unnamed is no longer a King James onlyist. <laughs> Alrighty. Anyway, so back to the revisions. All right. So what I did today, now a quick Google search, by the way, 
could completely overturn their argument here when it's just misspellings and mispronunciations. A lot of this information I got from Rick Beckman, who actually like compiled a certain uh, a whole bunch of them. I only picked some of them. I'm not going to go through every single difference in them. You can actually look them up. You can find them, and you can have a good old time with it. But I want you guys to notice something. See, keep in mind that every time in modern translations, if something deviates from the King James, they say it was removed or they're changing the word of God. Because what we're doing is, when you're doing that, is you're keeping the King James as the standard by which you are comparing. So not the texts, not the different manuscripts, not the different words and languages, none of that. You're using the King James, which is ultimately circular reasoning, because you're saying this is the standard, and all other translations, if they disagree with this standard, they must be wrong. The piles and piles of ancient manuscripts that say otherwise, you know, to them be damned. We don't need those because in the end, this is the standard. So that's important to acknowledge here because what we see in the differences between 1611 King James and 1769 King James, if this was any other Bible translation, they would say that you're changing the word of God. They would say, you are ch changing the word of God. Who are you, oh man? You'd hear all the same things levied against it. But because this is a tradition that's been passed on, because remember, there used to be Geneva Bible only as who then who looked at the King James Version as the liberal translation, and then the King James has become the standard, and then all other things are considered liberal translations. Now, I'm not saying, again, and people misunderstand, I'm not saying that all translational work is equal. Because, again, even as a deaf interpreter myself, there are different levels of deaf interpreting, and there are different people with different skill levels. Callie, my wife, is way better at deaf interpreting than I am. And then there's uh, my, my teacher back in college, and he was incredible. Uh, I've had a quite, and I was, you know, I've had friends that are RID certified, and obviously they're better than me. My brother-in-law is better than me. My sister is better than me in that. There's people who are, there's different skill levels in all translations. Also, there's some people who do translate bias, biasly. I'm looking at you, Passion Translation. I'm looking at you, Jehovah's Witnesses. I am looking at everyone who will purposely manipulate the text to make it say what they want it to say. But you'll notice most of these modern translations aren't done that way. Most of them are done with actual want to care. Now granted, people might bring up copyright issues that people are trying to make a profit. Of course, there is some of that as well going on. But at the same time, people still sell the King James. So people are still making a profit off the King James. So that does not fly. If you purchase the King James, you could buy a King James and someone's making money off of it, just like an ESV, NASB, NIV, whatever, your argument does not stand. So the whole idea of somebody's making money off it, yeah, no duh. It costs money to manufacture things. So anyway, all right, you guys are probably wondering if I'm ever going to get into these differences, but I am. Just making sure I, I get ahead of the head of the curve here. So let's this is going to be a lot of just reading texts, okay? So I don't want you guys to think that it's not going to be that way. It's going to be me reading. So here's some examples of the differences between 1611 and 1769 in the revision. For example, Joshua 311. And if you also look at the 1611, by the way, uh, it uses old English. So like a U might be a V. So in here, it's like Joshua 311. Ark of the Covenant is like covenant of the Lord. It's really covenant of even the Lord. So Ark of the Covenant, even the Lord versus Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So the verse reads as follows. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you in Jordan. But in the original 1611, it said, behold, the Ark of the Covenant, even the Lord 
of all the earth passed away. Not even, so even the, is it even the Lord or is it of the Lord? That's a pretty big difference. Is even the Lord involved or is it of the Lord? You see, there's a huge difference there in the meaning. And of course, this would be one of those memes that you see on Facebook where they would compare the two side by side and be like, which one is it, you liberals? That's what they would be doing here. But they're not, see, because it's not consistent. They have, to keep their, they have to keep their idol. Let's just put it that way. And again, guys, I'm only speaking in hot takes because I think it's best to set aside rhetoric and just get straight to the heart of it. This is an, an idolatry issue. You are setting a particular translation, a particular work of men at its particular time above all other works of men and saying that all other works of men are evil. And then you know, saying that because these people had biases in their theology that, or because these people lived unrighteous lives nowadays or because these people had wonky beliefs that they, they, we have to set aside their, their views like Westcott, Hort, uh, the people on translational committees. Maybe there was a Calvinist on there and it's the end of the world. Meanwhile, we ignore the fact that it was Anglicans who translated the King James who have a very different view on everything and actually tend to be more Calvinistic. Many things that are, basically many things that are levied against modern translations in history, you could levy against the Anglicans as well. It's, it's just silly. Um, all right, 2 Kings 11.10. In the temple versus in the temple of the Lord. 2 Kings 11.10 says this, and to the captains over hundreds did the priests give King David spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. But originally, in the 1611, it says that were just simply in the temple. So we see that in 1769, we added of the Lord. And this goes back into what I was saying before. Much of what you see in the King James when you're like, oh my goodness, if you compare over here, it's missing this verse. It wasn't missing. It was added to the text later to harmonize with something else or to make it sound more eloquent because actually the King James is pretty poetic in its writing. So again, we see between 1611 and 1769, things are added, things are shifted. Jeremiah 31, 14, and by the way, do not think that the, the, this doesn't swing the other way here in a minute. Jeremiah 31, 14, it says, with goodness or with my goodness. So in the 1611, so in the... Um, 1769, what people have now, it says this, and I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. But in the 1611, it says that they shall be satisfied with goodness, saith the Lord. Is it my goodness, or is it just general goodness, you hippies? <laughs> so, you see, that's, again, big difference. Is it my goodness? Is it God's goodness, or is it just goodness in general? Are we giving a happy, feel-good, hippie vibe, or are we giving a godly vibe? Of course, these are things that would be being communicated. Ezekiel 6.8 says this, that he may versus that ye may. Now, keep in mind, ye is you, right? So we have a you or a he. These are two totally different pronouns with to two totally different meanings. So 6.8 says this, yet will I leave a remnant that ye may, this is 1769, that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations when ye shall be scattered through the countries. So who's being scattered? Will you have some that shall escape or will he have some that shall escape? Big difference, big difference. Uh, this would be one of those things where, uh, again, you see the meme on Facebook where they would compare the two or on Instagram, like, ah, see, modern revisions, changing, changing the word of God. Who is this talking about actually? Uh, instead, just understanding that translations are translations, and sometimes you might have a scribal 
issue, which is why we're able to fact check. I mean, that's what Blue Letter Bible's for, right? That's what Bible Hub is for. Like, there is no reason to be entirely and completely ignorant nowadays on these things when you have it right at your fingertips. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to be a Greek expert, okay? I'm not saying there's not things that will be nuances you have to explore because you know, languages are complicated, especially ancient languages, and Greek and Hebrew are very different from English or any most modern uh, languages besides maybe actual Greece today or actual Hebrew or Middle Eastern languages today. But they're very different, right, than a lot of languages spoken today. And then we have another one. By the way, if you go through the entire book of Ezekiel, uh, with 1611 versus 1769, there's a lot of differentiations in the book of Ezekiel, but I'm just going to keep it under these two. Uh, Ezekiel 48.8 says this. So one, uh, seven, 1611 says, which they shall versus which ye shall. So again, they shall or you shall. Who is it? Is it plural or is it singular? Who are we changing here? Why are, are we changing the word of God? And by the border of Judah, from the east side unto the west side, shall the offering which ye shall offer of five and twenty thousand reeds in breadth and in length, and in one of the other parts from the east side unto the west side, and the sanctuary shall be in the midst of it. So will, is it they or is it ye? Which one? Uh, and then for, uh, this is actually a pretty big deal um, as far as understanding the New Testament's concern. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says this. So there's a differentiation in the 1611 that says, and that, versus 1769 that says, after that, and that, or after that. And that signifies in addition to. After that is obviously timeline. So 6-8, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. Or and that he shall he was seen. Is it and or is it after? What are we doing? Is it in addition to or after something? Or 1 John 5, 12. This is one of those ones that uh, cracks me up too. 1 John 5, 12. The Son hath versus the Son of God hath. He that hath the, hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That is hath... Son of God hath not is in the 1769 that they use today. But originally in the 1611 it says the son hath. It removes son of God. Or was it added? See, you have to ask these questions. Throughout time, were we, did these things add just because of tradition when people were going through manuscripts? That's why the majority texts um, and the later texts have more in them. Not because they're more accurate, but because over time, people started harmonizing between the gospel accounts or, oh, yeah, the son of God or versus the son. Well, they also call him the son of God over here. So reverently, or when they see the son, they just write down son of God. Not saying it's like completely entirely inaccurate because the son is the same as the son of God. We know this because in all texts, it refers to Jesus as the son of God, but it does show that over time, people in manuscript history shifted some things. Now, that does not mean you can't find the truth, because we have, and that's what the whole Nestle Allen text basically is, is this whole idea of a breakdown of, okay, this is what this is, and that's why in your Bible, you'll even have like little footnotes that are like, hey, some of the manuscripts do say this, this was debated, this is where we went with, this is why. But you can still compare them. So, and keep in mind, none of these things actually change major doctrinal issues. The Son is the same as the Son of God, and the Son that 
When it says the son over here or the son of man in one gospel, it'll say the son of God in the other. That's fine. There's really no issue with it. Or even in the next chapter. So again, it just does not hold up. But what if I told you there's also a different print of the 1769 King James? Because there's an Oxford and a Cambridge print of the KJV in use today. So just as an idea, Cambridge versus Oxford differences. So the Cambridge in Jeremiah 34, 16, the Cambridge says, whom ye had set, versus the Oxford, which says, whom he had set in Jeremiah 34, 16. Again, they, I mean, he or you. Is it personal or is it somebody else? But ye turned and polluted my name and caused every man in his in man his servant and every man his handmaid whom he had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. Is it whom he had set liberty or is it whom you had set liberty? Who's setting liberty? Is it you? Is it this person? Specifically, or is he a third person? Which one is it? Or another one in 2 Timothy 2.2, it says, heard from me in the Cambridge versus the Oxford, which says heard of me. This is a big difference, from me or of me. Did you hear from me or did you hear of me? 2 Timothy 2.2, and the things that thou hast heard of me or heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So is it of me or is it from me? Did you hear from me among many witnesses or did you hear of me? Did, did God speak out or did, you know, Paul speak out from amongst a crowd? Or did you hear of him from the crowd? Big difference. If the 1611 King James is so perfect... And this translational thing was so beautiful and perfect by the best people out there. Why is it that there are literally dozens of variations of pronouns, uh, a shift of claiming the Son of God versus just the Son? Why is there such vast differences in the text if it's so perfect? And why are there so many changes made between 1611 and 1769? Someone's going to do the whole, like, Everybody can hear someone's going to take Psalms out of context and do the whole like, well, it's been purified seven times, as if that is speaking to about the King James, which I could just as easily revise the NASB and claim and do that seven times and claim that it's been revised seven times and through and it's, you know, been sanctified seven times like pure gold. I could say the same thing. That's not what that verse is talking about. So let's not, let's not sit there and rip verses again out of context and make them forcefully apply and jam them into our modern context. It's not a good look, and it's not helpful. So what, which KJV is perfect? Let me ask you that. So is it 1611 or is it 1769? If you say 1769, great. Is it the Cambridge or the Oxford? Which one is perfect? How do you know which one it is? If you say, well, we have to go back to the texts, then I go, welcome to my position. I say, well, let's go back to the text and just double check, making sure that the nuances have been caught. So if you say Texas Receptus, then I'll say, well, how do you know the Texas Receptus is correct? Because it's compiled, remember? It's like you know, you're, you're taking about a dozen manuscripts, actually less than, like six to 10, and you're, and you're comparing them. And remember, Erasmus had to compare less than a dozen texts and do textual criticism and compile it into the Texas Receptus. 
and that's the thing is that people want to only say Westcott and Hort invented textual criticism. No, they invented the term. Okay, other people have been doing uh, textual criticism for decades before Westcott and Hort. It's just the way, the way it is. It's just this is history. This is fact. You don't get to argue this. This isn't a oh well. That's your view. No, no. This is fact, not fiction. People have always done textual criticism when compiling a text. Otherwise, when the texts vary, when they're compiling into a singular text, what? how else do they make a decision if they're not going to commit some sort of criticism, textual criticism, some sort of analyzing over that text to figure out what the text actually meant or what it actually said? So bottom line is, there's big differences between 1611, 1769, and then even then, there's Cambridge and Oxford versions. So you can't sit there and say that it's perfect every single time. They will vary. So this is just more textual evidence that the King James-only position is actually a false doctrine created by mankind. And I think it's out of a desperation to, one, I well, I think there's a few reasons. I think one, it comes from a good place because they want stability. because if you have to start questioning the translation and making sure that something got it right, or you are building a doctrine off of a certain statement, well, it's a lot easier to say that, nope, this is the way it is, this is, the way it, this is what it's always been, this is the, the standard, because any deviation from that would make you actually have to dig in and start wrestling with some nuances, having some actual interaction and rigorous discourse over theological topics, making sure that the church got it right after, over the last many eons. So I think there's a certain stability there. I think that's why people like it. Also, because of the language in the King James, you know, sometimes it's a little more awkward to read nowadays. I think some people actually, it's easier for them to manipulate. It's easier for them to, to change the meaning of a text because of how strangely it, can, it is worded compared to today. So some people, it makes it easier to manipulate their agenda into the text where nowadays, you know, there's so many others that are so clear. But one, one of the things I find funny is that usually uh, one of the biggest accusations levied against modern translations is that they're liberal, right? They're liberal and they're trying to make sin okay, and they're trying to water it down. Meanwhile, in the King James, it'll say the word concupiscence, which is like a sexual lust or a sexual desire or a sexual sin, concupiscence, like a fleshly desire, and or it'll say fornication or that which is unseemly. And straight up, when it comes to like arsenokoitai, which is the word for homosexual in the New Testament, the ESV and NASB straight up will say homosexuality and condemn it outright. Whereas people use the King James even today to try to justify homosexuality because like, oh no, look, it just says fornication. I'm not doing this outside of marriage. Or, oh, just as that which is unseemly. Or insert the thing here, abominations before the Lord. Well, that's abomination isn't necessarily homosexuality. That's why the new translations actually state it specifically what that word means today, which is a man loving another man or a woman loving another woman the same way. So the point is here that the accusations actually levied against these liberal translations don't usually actually hold up. Now, granted, there are liberal translations. I'm not saying there's not. I'm not saying that the, all translations are equal, because they're not. But to sit there and act like God inspired a translation is vastly different than what we actually have. God, let me just make this clear. God inspired the originals. And now people go, well, we don't have the originals. I go, yeah, exactly. 
So instead we have copies of copies of copies of copies. And people go, well, that's like, that makes it unknown. Yeah, what do you think the Texas Receptus was even compiled from? Later texts that were copied and copied and copied. So the, the, the very text that the King James is translated from is from texts that have been copied. But the best part about it is that we can go all the way back to the very early, I mean, we have some of the oldest texts, and we see that these texts, the earliest texts, even reflect the same message as these, as these older texts, I mean, these newer texts. So the older texts reflect the newer texts, and the newer texts might add a few things here and there, but it's no big deal because it's already been taken care of, and we can see throughout history that these have remained consistent. So it means that this game of telephone idea that the atheists and other people levy against you saying that, oh, well, it's like a game of telephone. None of it's actually true anymore. You don't even know what it used to truly say. Well, no, we do know what it used to say because of things like the Dead Sea Scrolls and other things that are so ancient that, and they still reflect the exact same message. So again, it's not that God hasn't preserved his word. That's what King James Onlyus will say. It's not that God hasn't preserved his word. He has. He's preserved it in thousands of manuscripts, over 3,000 in the New Testament alone. Altogether, when people include um, the different like papyri and uh, Latin texts, people say it's about up to about 35,000 texts. Now, whatever. The point is, there's thousands of them that reflect each other all throughout different time periods in history. It, so yes, God did preserve his word. He preserved it exponentially. He preserved it in such a way that you could never actually possibly destroy it all because it's spread by the thousands across all the ancient empires. That's what makes it cool. God was made it so that we couldn't do what the Muslims did, which is destroy all the current Qurans and remake a new one and just hope that Uthman got it right. We, never, we don't have to just hope that the Anglicans got it right or Erasmus got it right because we have all the texts that we can compare to. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's actually preservation. And it's not just this tiny preservation either. It's not this, oh, God preserved it in one singular text. We better protect that one singular text. No, it's like, no, he, he did it in thousands, to the thousands, and in a way that we actually have to study and rigorously look at and go, okay, there's a small differentiation here. Oh, but we see that this older text said this. Oh, multiple older texts say the same thing. Oh, so this is just a little addition, but it's not that big of a deal. It's a small thing. He's saying of God versus the Son. You know, the Son or the Son of God. No big difference. It's okay. Or over here might say the Son of God, and over here just says the Son. And the older text said the Son of God. Okay, cool. Then we just put that in there. So don't buy into the propaganda. This is propaganda. So guys, this is just me. This is another part I'm putting into my King James Only series. We do have this in a playlist on um, the Church Split YouTube. You can just click that from part one and go all the way through. This will be added into that. And I hope this series is helpful to some of you because I'm going to just keep throughout my career at the Church Split, I'll probably just randomly do a King James Only one just to keep adding, attacking this thing from different angles and just showing the fact that King James Onlyism doesn't stand up. I'm not saying the King James is terrible. I'm not saying the King James is an abomination of a translation. I'm saying simply that the King James only ism actually makes us not as sure that God can preserve his word. Because what it ends up doing is it ends up taking all of the manuscript history, all the textual history from the most ancient ones and throws it out the window. And that is how we are able to defend the historicity of the Christian faith, is by using old sources all the way to modern sources and showing their consistency with each other. 
It's one of the one of the things that makes Christianity unique. No, no other faith really has that. So it's a really strong apologetics point. It's a point which we can't ignore, and it's a point we should embrace. Now, it does take hard work, but that's why the Bible says, to, to use the King James language, study to show thyself approved unto God, right? Because we're supposed to study. We're supposed to be students of the word. We're not supposed to be people who go, just are spoon-fed. No, we're supposed to be Bereans. We're supposed to fact-check. Well, how are you supposed to fact-check if you don't even know the resources in which to fact-check with? So, guys, don't buy into the hype. There are differences in the 1769 to the 1611 more than just spelling errors, more than just punctuation, big differences. Okay, there's differences between Cambridge and Oxford versions as well. So anyway, I hope this series has been helpful to you. We'll continue going onward. And guys, don't forget to like and subscribe to The Church Split. Hope we are um, a blessing to you. Even though we come off like we're a little cheeky from time to time, we crack jokes and stuff, and we're just a little, little bit more uh, cut up sometimes, I just want you guys to know the fact that we actually do care about you. We actually do care about this ministry. You know, it's not we're not just here for hot takes. You know, we do speak boldly. We speak forwardly. But this isn't an intention to just divide the body. This is to speak truth into lies. And we welcome people to disagree with us, especially if it's not an orthodox position, if this is something we can wrestle with and discuss. We welcome that because I think we need more of that in the church today. So anyway, guys, thank you so much for being here. And if you have any questions or comments, go ahead and drop them in the comment section below in the video or send us an email, and we will see you in the next episode. Take care, and God bless.